Lord, I also just would pray now that as we open up your word today, you would give grace, pour out your spirit, Lord, upon the, the, the word of God. Lord, I pray that it, what you have told us about yourself would become clear to us and would make a difference in the way we live. Help us to see you in all of your glory, Lord, and all of your splendor. So we just bow under your word, Lord. We submit to the, the power of your word and the authority of your word today. Speak to us, Lord. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, folks, we're going we're gonna to get right into our study. All right, here we go. So this morning we're going to be looking at the attribute of God, uh, his jealousy, the jealousy of God. We've looked at seven or eight of them now. This is the one that I think follows closely related to the last one, which was the faithfulness of God. And so today we're going to speak about the jealousy of God. And at the outset, I know that it sounds a little strange to talk about the jealousy of God because when we think of jealousy, we think of something negative or sinful. And it's right that we should think that way because the Bible actually talks about jealousy being a negative or sinful thing. Like in Romans 13, verse 13, it says, Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. There, there it links jealousy to strife, sensuality, sexual promiscuity, drunkenness, and carousing. I mean, all those things are the deeds of the flesh. There are sins against God. So at least there is a type of jealousy that is unrighteous and unholy. And in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 3, it says, For you are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? So, here Paul says that it's a fleshly thing if you're jealousy. Or if you're jealous. If it's a carnal thing. And Galatians 5, verse 20, there is an identification of the deeds of the flesh. And one of those deeds of the flesh there is jealousy. And Paul says, if you practice those things, you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. So that's how serious it can be to be someone who practices this aspect of jealousy. So we know that when it comes to human jealousy, at least much of the time, it's a sinful kind of jealousy. So how can we say that God is jealous, and yet we know God is holy? We've already talked about the fact. God is absolutely holy, and His holiness permeates and pervades every aspect of His being and all of His other attributes. So His jealousy must therefore be a holy jealousy. So how can that be? Well, the first thing we need to realize is simply that the Bible is unashamed about the fact that God is jealous. The Bible doesn't try to apologize for the fact that God is jealous in any way. It just boldly states that as one of his attributes. For example, let me give you a quick sampling of some scriptures. Exodus 34 verse 14 says, You shall not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. So God's name is jealous. The fact 
that God's name is jealous should clue us in that this is an essential part of his nature and his being. Deuteronomy 4.24 says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. So God's jealousy has to do with this consuming aspect of his being. He's a consuming fire. We're going to find as we look through the scriptures that God's anger is coupled together with his jealousy. They go hand in hand. In a similar way that human jealousy does. When you're jealous and someone's stealing away your spouse, you get angry at that person that's violating your covenant. Deuteronomy 32.16 says, They made him jealous with strange gods. With abominations they provoked him to anger. So again, they made him jealous with strange gods. So over and over the Bible just bluntly states that God is a jealous God. So what are we supposed to make of all this? When we think of a jealous husband, sometimes we can think of that guy who's insecure and he's abusive and he flies off the handle in a rage at the least provocation. Well, that's not what we're talking about when we talk about God. God is not insecure. God doesn't fly off the handle. But God is jealous. So why does the Bible use the word jealous to speak of our creator? And here's three different possibilities. We might ask, is this just an outdated view of God? Like it was true in the Old Testament, but by the time we come to the New Testament, it's no longer true. It's no longer true about God. In other words, God was jealous in the Old Testament, but when we come to the New Testament, it's, that's gone. Well, we all know instinctively that's not true. That's not right. The same God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. He, he hasn't changed his character, right? Number two, is this just a human way of talking about God that we shouldn't take too literally? You know, just a figure of speech that we don't want to press it too far. Again, I would say no. I think that we should take it at face value. If it says God's a jealous God, that there's something that God is trying to communicate to us about himself here. Number three, is the word jealous a bad translation from the original Hebrew word? Actually, no. It's a good translation of the original Hebrew word. None of those options are viable. So the answers to those questions are no, no, and no. <laughs> now, we might get some help just from looking at a, an English dictionary. What does the word jealousy mean? And there are two primary uses of the word jealousy. Number one, to be intolerant of rivals and unfaithfulness. Okay? To be intolerant of rivals or unfaithfulness. Number two, to be vigilant in guarding a possession. Actually, we're going to see that both of those human def or English definitions of the word jealousy fit very well with God's character. He is intolerant of rivals and unfaithfulness, and he does vigilantly guard those things that are his possession. So I'm going to take those two definitions and look at how they fit with the nature and character of God. So the first one is this. God is intolerant of rivals and unfaithfulness. Now, when we think of someone who is jealous, almost always we think about a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or someone who has a romantic relationship with somebody else. Right? It's almost always... Jealousy fits within the context of, of lovers. So jealousy is something that lovers sometimes feel when their covenant is being threatened. 
For example, if a husband notices that a strange man is flirting with his wife, he starts to feel jealousy. Now, why does he feel jealousy over that? Because he feels like there's the potential for the marriage covenant that he has with his wife to be violated or to be threatened. And so it's a natural response to that. And in that case, I do not think that jealousy is sinful. I think jealousy is appropriate under those circumstances. Um, what would you think of a husband who didn't care whether another man was flirting with his wife? Or, <laughs> yeah, he doesn't value the marriage. And he doesn't, must not love his wife very much if he doesn't care about somebody else making advances or hitting on her or flirting with her, right? Or what would you think about a husband who didn't care that his wife was going out to bars and uh, dancing and partying with other men and you think, something's really wrong here. Something's really wrong. Jealousy under those circumstances is appropriate and righteous. So we would conclude this person really didn't love his wife or he didn't value the marriage at all. Now, interestingly, in the Bible, God identifies himself as the husband of Israel in the Old Testament. Israel was the wife of Jehovah. Isaiah 54 verse 5 says, For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. So Israel is the wife of Jehovah. God entered into covenant with Israel. Marriage is a covenant. We know that from the book of Malachi. Uh, it talks about the covenant of your youth, the marriage. So God entered into this covenant, this marriage with Israel, and he saw Israel as his wife. And because God had entered into a covenant, a marriage covenant with the nation of Israel, he expected Israel to be faithful to him. Now, were they? They were not. God will not tolerate rivals. And God will not tolerate unfaithfulness, but yet Israel was unfaithful to the Lord. In Jeremiah 3 and verse 20, God says, Surely as a woman treacherously departs from her lover, so you have dealt treacherously with me, O house of Israel, declares the Lord. So God entered into marriage with Israel. Israel dealt treacherously with God. Israel was unfaithful to the Lord. So how did Israel do that? How were they unfaithful to the Lord, specifically? The answer is really, really clear in the Bible. In fact, in almost every single passage of Scripture that you see the word jealousy, or God's attribute of jealousy mentioned, you're going to see it in connection with idols. In fact, I'd encourage you to get a, a concordance and just look them all up. I found 26 verses that talk about the jealousy of God. In almost every single context of that verse, idol worship, graven images, molten images are mentioned. In fact, let me share a few passages of Scripture that help you see this. Exodus 20, verses 3 through 5. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, this is the Ten Commandments. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, and the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. Now, here he says, you're not supposed to make an image or an idol of anything 
in the heaven above or in the earth beneath or under the waters? Why not? Because I'm a jealous God. That's why you're not to do that. In Exodus 34, verses 12 to 14, God says, Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst. But rather you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their asherim. All those things refer to idol worship. Why? For you shall not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. You see, God states the reason why they were not to commit idolatry. It's because he was jealous. And that would mean that they were dealing treacherously with him. They were being unfaithful to the covenant that he had entered into with Israel. Deuteronomy 4, verse 23 and 24. So watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you and make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. Why? For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And all, all these texts, the, the stated reason for not going after idols was that God is jealous and that he takes seriously his covenant people dealing treacherously with him and departing from him and being unfaithful to him. So God's jealousy, number one, it means that he will not tolerate rivals. He will not tolerate unfaithfulness. He will not tolerate idols in the life of his people. Now in the Old Testament, Israel is the wife of Jehovah. In the New Testament, the church is the bride of Christ. We learn that from 2 Corinthians 11 verse 2 where Paul is talking about his relationship to the church. And he says there, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. So, Paul is saying to the church at Corinth, I betrothed you to one husband, that is to Christ, that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. Now, in, in the Jewish way of, of, the way of Jewish marriages was that you would usually get betrothed to that person about a year ahead of the actual consummation of the marriage. So the betrothal was kind of like our engagement period, except that it was a legally binding agreement. In other words, if you decided between the betrothal and the consummation of the marriage that you didn't want to enter into this, you had to get a, a legal divorce because you were legally married at the time of betrothal. Well, the church is legally married to Christ, even though that relationship has not been consummated. The consummation will take place when Christ returns. But we're in the betrothal period right now, and He is our husband, and we have a legal obligation to our husband. So God identified Himself as jealous in the Old Testament, and we shouldn't think that He somehow changed His character or his attributes between the Old and the New Testament. He's still intolerant of rivals, and he's still intolerant of unfaithfulness with his church today, because we are his bride. Now, is it possible for the church today to be unfaithful to Christ? We know that Israel was in the Old Testament. I believe it is absolutely possible for us to be unfaithful to him. I believe that if the church worships idols, just like if Israel worships idols, we are now being unfaithful to our covenant husband. And God will not tolerate that. 
He will not tolerate rivals, and he will not tolerate unfaithfulness. Now, it's pretty easy to identify the worship of idols in the Old Testament because it meant that they actually took blocks of stone or marble or, or wood and they fashioned an object and they bowed down before it. That's pretty obvious. Is there any other kinds of ways that we might actually participate in idolatry without actually doing that? And I think there is. I think we have hints of how we can actually be unfaithful to the Lord without actually bowing down before blocks of stone or wood. And we have a couple of those hints in the New Testament. One of them is found in Philippians 3, verse 18 and 19. Let's take a look at that. It's Philippians 3, 18 and 19. So here Paul says, For many walk, of whom I often told you and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. Now the, the little phrase I want you to focus in on there is this one, whose God is their appetite. Whose God, whose idol is their appetite. Now he's talking about people who are going to be destroyed, so these are not genuine believers, these are, uh, maybe they were, at one time they were professing believers, but at this time Paul says they're enemies of the cross of Christ, they're going to be destroyed, but the thing you can notice about them is that their God is their appetite. The King James says their God is their belly, and that's actually more literal than appetite, because the word actually refers to the stomach. It talks about how Jonah was three days and three nights in the heart of the belly of the whale, well that's the word here, <laughs> it's the stomach or the belly, that's what their God is. Now what did he mean? The Greek word is koilia, means stomach or belly, and I understand that to mean that these people had given their appetites the devotion and the attention that God alone deserves. Their fleshly appetites had become their God. They thought more about their fleshly appetites than they did about worship of God, serving God, loving God, walking with God, communing with God. Their appetites had become their God. I think that an obsession with food can be idolatry from this passage. I think probably that's why gluttony is identified as sinful in the Bible, because it it's preferring something over God, and that really I think that's the essence of sin, is to prefer something to God. And if uh, food, talking about the belly, or the appetites, if food can be a manifestation of idolatry, then by extension you could say things like drunkenness, drug addictions, illicit sexual relationships, all the manifestations of the flesh that we give ourselves to and become obsessed with, we become slaves to, those things are manifestations of idolatry. So that's one. That's one New Testament text that gives us a, a hint as to how we can commit idolatry without actually bowing down to blocks of stone and wood. Another one is in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. And it simply says there, it speaks of greed, which amounts to idolatry. He says greed is idolatry. Now why would greed amount to idolatry? 
Well, I think it's because we are longing for or desiring something more than we long for God. We have this, this greed, this covetousness, and we're obsessing over and thinking about and being preoccupied with this thing that we want so that God is not in all our thoughts. He, we're neglecting Him. We're, we're not pursuing Him because we're pursuing after this one thing that we're greedy over. And so materialism could be an idol. Uh, the love of money could be an idol. Even though we're not bowing down anything, this becomes an idol in our heart. Not a physical one, but in our heart. So I guess you could say that whatever becomes the master passion of your life has become an idol. Because that thing has taken God's place in your affections and in your thoughts and in your devotion. So let me just ask you, does God have reason to be jealous concerning you today? If you think about your life, is there any area where something or someone has replaced God in your life? Does his anger burn because you are being unfaithful to him? That's strong language, but that's the language the Bible uses. It talks about his wrath coupled with his jealousy, often. That's a, just read the texts. Um, are, are you and I tolerating rivals in our life? Rivals to God, and we're allowing them. We're not dealing with them, we're allowing them. Is it obvious and clear that we worship and serve God alone, uh, these extremely important questions for us to think about and to ask and to answer. That's the first definition of jealousy, to be intolerant of rivals or unfaithfulness. The second one is that God is vigilant in guarding a possession. He's vigilant in guarding a possession. You might say he's fiercely protective of certain things. Fiercely protective. Think of a soldier who's been commanded to vigilantly guard this prisoner of war on pain of losing his life if that person escapes. Okay, so he's vigilant about making sure that person is kept in his possession. Um, so if jealousy is to vigilantly guard a possession, how would that apply to God? What is God vigilantly guarding? What possession does he vigilantly guard? I'm just going to mention two things that I think are the most obvious ones. Number one, his people. Number two, his honor. So let's talk about his people. The Lord is not going to allow his children to wander or stray away from him and give their love and their affection and their attentions to someone or something else. When the Lord saves us, he doesn't just walk away from us and say, well, I hope you don't stray away and end up in hell. I hope you persevere to the end, but I'm just, you know, I'm not going to be in your life anymore. No, God starts a good work. And he perfects that work until the day of Christ Jesus. He's involved from day one through the last day of your life. He's constantly working in the life of the Christian. He perfects that work of grace. Those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. Charles Spurgeon once put it this way in one of his sermons. God can't endure that you should love the world. His love is as strong as death towards you. If you don't love him with a single heart, he will take away that husband, smite that child, bring you from riches to poverty, from health to sickness, even to the gates of the grave, because he loves you so much he can't endure that anything should stand between your heart's love and him. Remember, Christian, you are married to a jealous husband. 
end quote. We looked at this text last week, but I think it bears repeating. Jeremiah 32, 40. God says, I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. God is committing to making sure that His children don't turn away from Him and be unfaithful and go after other lovers and forsake the covenant that they've entered into with the Lord. He puts His fear in their hearts so that that doesn't happen. When Jude wrote his short little letter in the New Testament, he begins by describing the people he's writing to, and he says, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. So God keeps those whom he enters into covenant with. 1 Peter 1.5 tells us that the believers are protected by the power of God through faith for his salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So God is actively working protecting us by almighty power to keep us in his love. In 1 Corinthians 1.8, we're told that God will confirm us to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. So if you, my friend, or me, Brian, if we begin to give our devotion and our worship and our heart and our affection and our commitment and our attention to someone or something other than God, in other words, we're replacing God with this thing in our life. Depend on it. God will not stand for it. Because God vigilantly guards his possessions and his greatest possession is you and me, his people throughout this world, his church. He's going to act in holy jealousy. He will discipline us. He is going to get our attention. So that's first. Another possession, it's strange to call this a possession, but it's something that is rightfully God's, is His honor. The Lord will vigilantly guard His honor, not only His people. Ezekiel 39 verse 25 tells it like this, Therefore thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel and I will be jealous for my holy name. God isn't just jealous for his people. God is jealous for his holy name. In other words, he vigilantly guards his holy name from being defamed or polluted or dishonored in the sight of all the people. He talks about, I will not allow my name to be profaned among all the nations. You remember when Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness? And one of Jesus' retorts to the devil was, It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. God has the exclusive right to our worship. Only are we to serve and worship the Lord our God. And when we start worshiping or serving someone or something else, we have, we're being unfaithful. We're dealing treacherously with our covenant bridegroom. What we're really saying is this thing over here is what's really worthy of my attention and my devotion, not God. And so I'm going to give my attention and devotion to this person or this thing because they're more worthy of it than God is. Why else would I do it if I didn't think that they were more worthy of it than, than God is itself? And what's happening is that we're doing exactly what we find in Romans chapter 1, where, where Paul is writing and he says, 
this is verse 22 to 25 professing to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever Amen and that what we find in Romans chapter 1 repeats itself it repeats itself through all cultures and through all peoples endlessly the people that don't know God end up worshiping and serving the creature whether it's themselves or somebody else or something else rather than the Creator the one who should receive our worship the one who is blessed forever so the Lord vigilantly guards his church because he loves her and he doesn't want the church to be harmed by the seduction of idols but he also vigilantly guards his own honor and that's why he doesn't allow the church to go after these idols but he disciplines them and rebukes them and reproves them and brings them back because that profanes his holy name it dis devalues who he is because now they're saying that this this thing over here whether it's food or drink or alcohol or money or whatever that thing is that they're so obsessed by that thing's really what satisfies me that's really what gives me satisfaction in life and fulfillment and purpose and makes me happy more, more than God and so I'm gonna pursue this thing because God doesn't do it for me and that devalues God in the sight of his people so Isaiah 42 8 God says I am the Lord that is my name I will not give my glory to another nor my praise to graven images and Isaiah 48 11, for my own sake for my own sake I will act for how can my name be profaned and my glory I will not give to another when we give the glory of God to another an idol we're doing something diametrically opposed to God and his will for our lives so God's got two predominant motives in what he does the good of his church and the glory of his holy name and both of those go hand in hand okay so I think up until now we we get it right God will not tolerate rivals or unfaithfulness and God will vigilantly guard his people and his honor he's jealous in that respect so let's let's draw it down to some conclusions and some application what, it, what does that mean for you and me well I've for me it means three things first of all it means I need to realize I dishonor God when I serve idols I dishonor him because I'm saying this thing is more valuable than God is otherwise why would I give my affection to it my attention my devotion to this thing so it could be hobbies sports money entertainment food sex all of these things and probably a lot more than I can't even think of but anything that that takes God's place in our life they give me more joy and satisfaction so that's why I'm bowing down to them within my heart so I need to first of all just realize I need to realize that I dishonor God when I give what should be rightfully his to something else number two I need to refuse to tolerate rivals in my life refuse to tolerate them 
Jesus said the greatest commandment was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Now we can enjoy God's good gifts without worshiping them. And that's sometimes the, the trick, isn't it? How do I just... I think if you can, with a, with a uh, clear conscience, you can thank God for that activity that you're engaged in, because you know you're not sinning in that, but you're actually giving Him glory for whatever it happens to be. Whether it's enjoying some good food, or whether it's enjoying a movie, that, that it's not polluting your mind or degrading anything. You see my point, the things of life, if we can do them with a clear conscience, giving God thanks and glory, then that's awesome. We're not overstepping any bounds. But I think too often we go too far and we overstep the bounds. So what does your life show that you love supremely? If someone were to look at the time that you spend, maybe, or the money that you spend, where does it go? We face potential rivals everywhere, don't we? Your cell phone can be a rival to God. Your cell phone. How many people here have one? Do you have a cell phone? Okay, just about everybody that I know of today has one. Okay, so you have an appointment to meet with God in the morning. And you keep your cell phone right there on the table. And notifications start buzzing. And so you, you have to look. And then you get drawn into whatever that notification is, right? Someone's texting you, and so now you're texting back. Or now you're looking over on this app for something. And before you know it, all your time with God is gone, and you've been obsessed with your phone and the things on your phone the whole time. Has that ever happened to anybody besides me? <laughs> so what I'm trying to do is either keep it in my back pocket on vibrate or keep it in the room while I have my time with God so that I'm not so distracted. I, I, want, I don't want the Lord to feel like he's second in my life like he doesn't have my attention when I meet with him you know okay so f your cell phone can be a rival food can be a rival to God I could actually think more about food than God in my life it can op occupy my mind and my heart money can be a rival to God it's possible for me to get so caught up in trying to make more money that I'm not thinking about the Lord I'm just thinking about this this goal Entertainment can be a rival to God. I think this is probably one of the big idols in America today because we have leisure time and we've got money to spend on entertainment. In fact, I know it is. I, I, I employ a lot of really young kids, like 20 to 22 years old, and when I ask them, what do you guys like to do in your free time? It's always video games. And it's sometimes it's hours and hours every day on video games. But it can be TV, it can be Netflix, I mean, whatever your entertainment happens to be, if that thing is causing you to neglect communing with God, it's replacing God in your life. Entertainment can become a rival to God. Hobbies and sports can become a rival to God. When a Christian chooses to be out on the lake in his boat rather than going to church, yes. I think idolatry has set in. When a Christian is thinking more about the football game on TV that's going to happen, rather than the church meeting he's engaged in, something's wrong in his heart. That football game is taking priority in his mind and his affection over the worship of God. So, if we realize that we're entertaining rivals to God, what should we do about it? 
Like if there's something that comes to mind, yeah, that, that is potentially a rival to God in my heart. What do I do about it? Well, Exodus 34, 13 says, But rather you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. In other words, destroy the idol. Cut it down. Smash it. You're going to have to deal with that thing. You can't just hope that things get better without dealing with it. So maybe the answer is just as simple as leaving your phone in the other room when you meet with God for prayer or for Bible study. Maybe it's increasing the time you spend reading edifying books or watching edifying videos or movies rather than in just simply entertainment. Maybe it's to make a decision that Sunday is a holy day to the Lord and so nothing's going to come before your commitment to gather with the church, including your hobbies or your interests or your sports. So that's number two. Number one is realize that you dishonor God when you serve idols. Number two, re refuse to tolerate those rivals in your life. Number three, demonstrate a godly jealousy for God's church and His honor. So what do I mean by demonstrating a godly jealousy for God's church and God's honor? It goes back to 2 Corinthians 11, 2 and verse 3. Where Paul says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and the purity of devotion to Christ. So Paul was concerned about the church being led astray. Led astray from their simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. You see, if you read 2 Corinthians, you'll find out that there were false teachers that were vying for the minds of these believers. And Paul was concerned about them being led off into false teaching. And so, he had this godly jealousy that the church would remain pure and not stray and not veer off from the Lord. So Paul didn't want any rivals rising up and drawing disciples after the church. He didn't want the church to become unfaithful to the Lord. And so we should have the same concern and desire for God's church. When you notice that somebody is starting to fall away from the Lord, do you have a godly jealousy like Paul did? Or do you just kind of turn a blind eye and just maybe utter a quick prayer, Lord, bring them back, but don't do anything? Do you call them? Do you text them? Do you try to meet with them? Do you try to persuade them? You see, that's having a godly jealousy for the church, is to be engaged when people start to go astray and do everything in your power to bring them back. Or, let's say that you see that the church is starting to dishonor the Lord by valuing the things of the world more than valuing the things of Christ. In that situation, do you humbly and respectfully bring this up? Do you speak? Do you bring it to the attention of the elders and say, hey, I'm noticing this. We need to do something. Our, our people are starting to become worldly. We, we're not valuing the things of Christ like we ought. So bottom line, we have a jealous husband. It's just a fact. We have a jealous husband who loves us, who won't let us go who is a consuming fire. So we must be faithful to Him, and we must honor Him above all.
Let's pray. We ask, O oh Lord, this morning that you would speak to our hearts about rivals that we have entertained and tolerated and in areas of our life that we have been unfaithful to you. And we pray for the, the grace of true repentance, turning, godly sorrow, turning and truly desiring, Lord, that you would be that one that satisfies, that one that fills us with joy and happiness. We pray, Lord, that we would walk close to you and commune with you and that, Lord, we would not be unfaithful. So, Lord, work in us to will and to work for your good pleasure. Work in us, Lord, that which is pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.